This sermon was recorded at the Johnson County Congregation of Redeemer Fellowship, a church that exists to cultivate communities of transformed disciples who live for the glory of God and the good of the city. For more information, visit RedeemerKansasCity.org. Scripture reading for this morning is Isaiah 56, 9 through 57, 21. That can be found on page 616 of the Black Hardback Bibles. Isaiah 56, starting in verse 9. All you beasts of the field come to devour, all you beasts in the forest. His watchmen are blind, they are all without knowledge. They are all silent dogs that cannot bark, dreaming, lying down, loving to slumber. The dogs have a mighty appetite. They never have enough, but they are shepherds who have no understanding. They have all turned to their own way, each to his own gain, one and all. Come, they say, let me get wine. Let us fill ourselves with strong drink, and tomorrow will be like this day, great beyond measure. The righteous man perishes, and no one lays it to heart. Devout men are taken away while no one understands. For the righteous man is taken away from calamity. He enters into peace. They rest in their beds who walk in their uprightness. But you draw near, sons of the sorceress, offspring of the adulterer and of the loose woman. Whom are you mocking? Against whom do you open your mouth wide and stick out your tongue? Are you not children of transgression, the offspring of deceit? But you who burn with lusts among the oaks, under every green tree, who slaughter your children in the valleys, under the clefts of the rocks, among the smooth stones of the valley is your portion. They, they are your lot. To them you have poured out a drink offering. You have brought a grain offering. Shall I relent of these things? On a high and lofty mountain you have set your bed, and there you went up to offer sacrifice. Behind the door and the doorpost you have set up your memorial, For deserting me, you have uncovered your bed. You have gone up to it. You have made it wide. You have made a covenant for yourself with them. You have loved their bed. You have looked on nakedness. You journeyed to the king with oil and multiplied your perfumes. You sent your envoys off and sent down even to Sheol. You were wearied with the length of your way, but you did not say it is hopeless. You found new life for your strength so that you were not faint. Whom did you dread and fear so that you lied and did not remember me, did not lay it to heart? Have I not held my peace even for a long time, and you do not fear me? I will declare your righteousness and your deeds, but they will not profit you. When you cry out, let your collection of idols deliver you. The wind will carry them all off. A breath will take them away. But he who takes refuge in me shall possess the land and shall inherit my holy mountain." And it shall be said, build up, build up, prepare the way, remove every obstruction from my people's way. For thus says the one who is high and lifted up, who inhabits eternity, whose name is holy. I will dwell in the high and holy place and also with him who is of a contrite and lowly spirit to revive the spirit of the lowly and to revive the heart of the contrite. For I will not contend forever, nor will I always be angry. For the spirit will grow faint before me and the breath of life that I made. Because of the iniquity of his unjust gain, I was angry. I struck him. I hid my face and was angry. But he went on backsliding in the way of his own heart. I have seen his ways, but I will heal him. I will lead him and restore the comfort to him and his mourners, creating the fruit of the lips. Peace, peace. 
peace to the far and to the near, says the Lord, and I will heal him. But the wicked are like the tossing sea, for it cannot be quiet, and its waters toss up mire and dirt. There is no peace, says my God, for the wicked. Good morning, everybody. My name is Mark, and I'm one of the pastors here, and I'm really glad that you're here. Welcome. <clears throat> there's, no better, there's no better answers to what we're facing as Christians. There's no better answers to what we're facing in this world than what the Word of God delivers to us. There's no tips or apps. There isn't a life hack that can transform us from the inside out. And there's nothing on Twitter that can heal you. There's nothing on Instagram that can stabilize you. There's nothing on Facebook that can correct you, that can reconstruct your inner being like the Word of God can. There's the Word of God, and then there's everything else. And I'll stand on the Word. I'll fight for the Word. We'll take blows for the Word of God as long as God gives us um, breath. The fact is, is that the living God has spoken and we know what to do. We get underneath it. So let me pray for us and then we'll dig in. Heavenly Father, would you open our hearts so that your word would be delivered to our hearts in deep ways? Would you give us good soil to receive it? Spirit of the living God, would you come and comfort those who mourn? Would you convict the proud? Would you challenge? Would you correct us? Would you reorient us? God, we believe, we declare that we cannot do anything apart from you. We need you to lead. We need you to direct. We need you to guide us. So be with us as we take a step and sit underneath your scriptures, I ask. ask for grace. ask for your kindness. ask for your mercy. Be with us this morning in the name of Jesus. Amen. And hey, my outline for today highlights just two main problems and then one common solution. God and the prophet indict the leaders of God's people, and then God and the prophet indict the people for their idolatry. And we'll take each section in turn, and two things that I want to mention about that is one, all sin is idolatry. And two, all of a Christian's life is one of repentance. That's a famous Martin Luther quote, right? The first of the 95 Theses. All of a Christian's life is one of repentance. What we see in our text today is that every leader and every follower is susceptible to idolatry. And I mean all-consuming, deeply destructive idolatry. And all of a Christian's life is about repentance and repentance and repentance. So we'll examine specific sins of these leaders, and then we'll look at the sins of the people. And we'll talk about the God who moves toward both. So we have 
We have our outline today is talking about the leader's failure, the people's failure, same solution, same answer, okay? The protocol to deal with my failure and sin is the same protocol for you to deal with your failure and sin. And verses 9 through 12 is where we'll begin. In the last four verses of chapter 56, we see a strong indictment of the leaders of Israel. This is a clear and scathing indictment upon these leaders and shepherds, and that's not lost on me, right? It was sobering and humbling and unnerving to study and prepare for this sermon. It was hard because this text is about people like me, people who sit in the seat that I sit in. And this text, we'll see, is about people like you. I read and prepared for this sermon with a mirror in front of my face because although God might not be sending dogs to eat me right now, I imagine that the very same sins that these leaders were tempted with are the same sins that today our leaders will be tempted with. There's four failures from these verses that I want to highlight. I want to point out as we examine our own hearts because anyone can apply this section that's aimed at these leaders to themselves as well, right? Anyone who has any kind of responsibility to care for anybody or lead anybody can, can also examine their hearts with regard to these four, these four failures. We want to hold up the perfect mirror of the word of God and we want to invite the kindness of God that leads us to repentance. These leaders are blind. These leaders are silent. These leaders are lazy. And these leaders are self-indulgent. Some people break it up in other ways as well and add some more things to the list, but I'm just going to stick with those four. First, these leaders are blind. <clears throat> these watchmen aren't watching anything. They aren't taking care of anything but themselves. The text says that they're blind, and that means blind in understanding. Obviously, these men aren't physically blind because that's not the point. The watchmen of Israel refers especially to the prophets, and these were the men who were supposed to be able to see what spiritual dangers were on the horizon, right? They were supposed to be on the lookout for what was threatening the people of God, but these leaders aren't paying attention, and if they are, they can't discern what's happening. They don't know. They don't have their discernment antenna up. They don't notice the dangers that are coming. They're without knowledge, the text says. And this means that they might see something, but they don't see the right thing. They might be looking at something, but they aren't looking at what's really there. They might have their eyes open, but they can't grasp what the real threats are. This reminds me of chapter 16 of Matthew, when the Pharisees and Sadducees come to Jesus and they ask him for a sign, and he says, Hey, when you guys are looking out in the morning or in the evening, you look out in the evening and you say, it'll be fair weather for the sky is red. And then in the morning, you say, it'll be stormy today for the sky is red and threatening. You know how to predict the weather, but you don't know what's going on really. The watchmen aren't doing their job. They don't have the knowledge that they need. They aren't paying attention to the central and primary issues. And even if they could see, this text implies that they wouldn't say anything about it. Because these leaders are silent. 
These leaders are quiet. The text says they are all silent dogs. They cannot bark. These are the leaders, the leaders of Israel, the prophets, the priests, the kings of Israel. And they need to be like watchdogs, letting everyone know that there's something dangerous inside our house or there's a prowler outside. These prophets were to warn and rebuke and instruct the people about the dangers around them. And these leaders are not speaking up today. Today in the church specifically, the primary ways that the spiritual leaders are supposed to be barking is when it comes to false doctrine. We're supposed to be barking when our people become enticed by worldly philosophies and worldly ideologies. In the modern era and in the New Testament scriptures, we see the primary dangers that you're facing aren't about your body and they aren't about your life. The primary watchdog barking should be related to spiritual threats, not physical threats. In the New Testament, we read warning after warning after warning. We read about things that we need to stay away from and be on guard about. We're warned about the deceitfulness of sin. And we are also warned about teaching, about believing certain ideas and concepts that are not true. We're warned about ways of viewing ourselves and viewing the world that will actually harm our souls. Leaders of today must be watching for false teaching and warn people in the church to not be swerved into vain discussion, 1 Timothy says. Also, in the letters to Timothy, we read, the law is laid down for the lawless and disobedient, and the law is laid down for whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine. We should warn people that what they're doing is devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and teachings of demons. We are to avoid irreverent babble and contradictions of what is falsely called knowledge. We are told in the New Testament that a time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but have itching ears. They will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. In Titus, we're told to avoid foolish controversies and genealogies and dissensions and quarrels. We are warned about the insubordinate, the empty talkers and deceivers. Church leaders of today should be on watch for ideas and controversies and teachings that seep from our world down into our midst. We must speak up for our children as parents, right? And for anyone that we lead, we have to say something when we see these things. And these leaders were not doing any of that. They were silent. And they weren't only silent, they were also lazy. In verse 10, we see them lying down, dreaming, loving slumber. Sleeping when you're supposed to be working is the ultimate example of sloth and laziness in the book of Proverbs. These leaders don't understand, they don't see what's happening, they don't say anything, and they take a nap instead. There's an urgent kind of vigilance to the Christian life, and these leaders can't understand the significance of what's going on, and they don't, they don't even care. These leaders have lost the fire of their calling and the significance of this appointment. They become lethargic and avoidant. They haven't worked the muscles of wisdom and discernment, and now they become atrophied. They've abandoned their post as shepherds, partly because their work ethic has waned. 
They don't want to do the hard work of staying awake. They don't want to do the hard work of staying sober. They don't want to do the hard work of standing in the gap and remaining vigilant. Men who at one time had been on a mission and had a purpose that was full of meaning, they've become sluggards and dopes. They've become foolish and they love laziness. And the final failure I'll mention is that these leaders have become self-indulgent. If you're asking yourself, why are these men such losers? Verse 11 and 12 lets us know. It says right here in the text that these leaders have completely sinful priorities. They've become obsessed with self-indulgence and gluttony. Verse 11 says, the dogs have a mighty appetite. They never have enough. They have all turned to their own way, each to his own gain, one and all. The mighty appetite is insatiable. These drunkards and gluttons just want more and more and more, and their appetite is ravenous for sinful self-indulgence. And in verse 12, we hear from the leaders themselves as the prophet writes, come, they say, let us get wine. Let us fill ourselves with strong drink and tomorrow will be like this day, great beyond measure. So maybe these leaders are sleeping because they're hungover. Because this section lets us know that they're drinking all the time. They're partying. They're arranging their lives around leisure and pleasure. They've forsaken their sacred task and have opted for hedonistic indulgence instead and they've become stupid. This plan that they can just go on and on and on like this forever, day after day, believing the next day will be better than the last is foolish. This is what Proverbs would describe as folly at its most profane. They have no thought of God. They don't consider the justice and righteousness that we talked about last week. They're irrational. They're acting like fools and righteous men are dying around them. As we begin chapter 57, we see that God's taking righteous men out of the picture. No one notices, no one takes it to heart that God is taking righteous men away from calamity. They enter into peace. So God's looking down at the nonsense going on and and he's pulling out righteous men. They're dying and he's pulling them home where they'll find peace. Righteous men are dying, and it isn't having any reflective or sobering effect on anybody. No one cares. No one notices. One scholar sums up where we are so far like this. He says, we have this introductory picture. The leaders go on their own way, using their positions to secure for themselves increasing comfort and pleasure with decreasing satisfaction, while all around them the flock is being devoured. And one by one, the righteous disappear not to be replaced. And the people have all turned wholeheartedly toward idolatry. The rest of our text is about the failure of the people. The rest of these verses are about the consequences and the lure of idolatry. Chapter 57, verses 3 through 13 graphically describe the outworking of idolatry. We see pictures of idol worship and infidelity. The gross and natural outworking of idolatry is on display. And the first thing I want to draw your attention to 
It's the, is the consistent spiritual metaphor of idolatry as adultery in the Old Testament. The prophet Isaiah, Jeremiah, and Ezekiel all explain that forsaking the living God and setting all of your heart and all of your hope and all of your love on idols to satisfy you is idolatry and it is a tantamount to spiritual adultery. And the, the, the prophet Hosea was even instructed by God to marry a prostitute in order to have his entire life serve as a grand and arresting illustration of how God continually pursues us and pursues us and pursues us and we cheat on him and cheat on him and cheat on him with other gods. And these verses describe the consequences of illicit affection, illicit satisfaction, illicit love. This behavior is lewd and shameless. In verse 3 we read, But you draw near, sons of the sorceress, offspring of the adulterer and loose woman. Here we see that the idolatry of Israel is a betrayal and a scorning of their own heritage. They're not believing like the children of Abraham. They're not living like children of faith. They're behaving like children of sin and wickedness. When we love other things more than God, when we're satisfied and filled up and our hearts light up with soul satisfaction in anything other than the living God, we're living like lost people. In verse 4, we see the people are mocking God with their sin. They even stick out their tongues at the living God in disrespect and scorn. If you were wondering if that was some ancient custom for blessing somebody, it isn't. It's the same as it is today. It's the kind of thing that infuriates you, right? It's, it's disrespectful and it's, um, it's wicked and it's not subtle. Their actions are not subtle. They've made choices to set their heart, to set their focus, to set their hopes for security and provision on idols. And it isn't subtle, it's flagrant. It's flagrant and it's an insult to the holy God of Isaiah. And more, I don't want to get too graphic here, but there's something visceral and revolting about the picture of spiritual adultery. And that's intentional. Hey, God's aware of the fact that these sections of the Bible make us squirm in our seats. And it should. It should gross us out. Infidelity is repulsive. And our sinful idolatry should make us shudder. The Bible doesn't pull any punches here because there's something gruesome and nauseating about spiritual adultery. It's supposed to be that way. That's an example of God's common grace. The act of betrayal that happens in cases of violating the intimate covenant of marriage is powerful and destructive. And there's a reason that the plot of TV shows and movies will often use this kind of sin or failure to bring weight and tension to the story. It's because to betray that covenant is among our ugliness, ugliest of human actions. And that's the image that the living God uses over and over and over again as he describes our wandering hearts. Proverbs says that a man who commits adultery lacks judgment, and that's true for all of us. Spiritually, all of our spiritual infidelity is irrational. It's completely foolish. Instead of the free milk and wine and rich food that God offers us, 
the satisfaction for our souls that God offers us that's in front of us, instead of taking that, we eat garbage and we guzzle Drano and expect to satisfy our souls. There's two primary pagan spiritual categories in this text that are referenced during this section of the chapter. There's the cults of fertility that are demonstrated with references to trees and mountains and the pagan cults of death that are referenced by the mention to uh, human sacrifice here. So read verse five with me. You who burn with lust among the oaks under every green tree. So that's the, the pagan cults of fertility. That oak could be any big giant tree, but it's this devotion to fertility. Those of you who slaughter your children in the valleys and under the cleft of the rocks, this isn't a metaphor and it isn't a myth. It isn't just a story. This is in the Bible. God's chosen people were willing to literally kill their babies because of idolatry. In order to worship pagan gods, they were willing to kill their own children. There was a king in the time of Isaiah named Manasseh, and he was a wicked king. He's mentioned um, in the book of Isaiah, but he's also mentioned in 2 Kings 21 and 2 Chronicles 33. And there you can read that he sacrificed his own son in order to appease these pagan gods. And these kinds of like barbaric activities are well-researched and are part of archaeological history. It's a real thing. If you go to like a natural history museum in Jerusalem, um, you'll see rooms full of little idols that real children were killed to worship. And that's gruesome. And it's the cost of idolatry. Another Bible scholar has said it this way. She says, we always... We always become like our idols and we always sacrifice our children to our idols. What else is abortion if not the sacrifice to the God of independence or the God of autonomy or the God of convenience? People tend to look at the Bible in sections like this and think that we're so much more sophisticated than these pagan people, but are we? Are we? Do our children not always pay for our own self-worship? Do we not avoid disciplining our children or, or raising them up in the nurture and admonition of the Lord because we're too tired or too distracted? Or do we lack consistency here because of other places that we are, um, our hearts are aimed in other directions? Do we not put more effort at times into our Instagram presence than our full attention and presence in the lives and hearts of our children. Now, I want to be clear here. I don't think any of you are going to set your children on fire. But our children will always pay the cost for our sin and our idolatry. Always. Two more points about the idolatry described here is that it's everywhere. It's ubiquitous. It's ubiquitous. It's everywhere and it's tenacious. Chapter uh, 57, verse 7 says, On a high and lofty mountain you have set your bed, and there you went up to offer sacrifice. Behind the door and the doorpost you have set up your memorial. For deserting me, you have uncovered your bed. You have made it wide. 
You have made it wide. So here, something like the marriage bed that's supposed to be narrow, right, intimate and sacred, has been, the door has been busted wide open and they're just welcoming in anybody who wants to come in. They're violating something that should be beautiful and sacred. Here we have practices of spiritual adultery going on out in the open where everyone can see and adultery happening inside the privacy of a bedroom. It's happening everywhere, out in public and in private. There's no healthy kind of shamefulness about their actions. The truth is that these people should be ashamed of themselves. They're acting like pagans. They're acting like wicked people. They're acting like the wicked nation that's actually enslaved them. But they're not hesitant at all to sin aggressively and out in the open. They aren't even embarrassed by their behavior. They're publicizing it. They're publicizing it. And acting like this is not an antiquated practice, right? It's rampant in our culture right now. Almost weekly, I hear of some Christian leader from years past who has fully rejected orthodoxy or rejected Christianity entirely. Men and women who led people to Jesus who gave biblical sound counsel to couples or a pastor to his flock, and now they're recanting everything. And what's worse is that they're apologizing to people for it. They're telling people, I'm sorry for saying that you could believe the Bible. I'm sorry for saying that hell is real. I'm sorry for saying that marriage is between one man and one woman. I see almost weekly Almost weekly, people that at one time followed Jesus and submitted to the scriptures now fully deconstructing themselves, and they aren't subtle about it. They're publicizing it, Instagramming it, and blasting it on Twitter. Things that are lewd and shameful are being celebrated in our culture. And a side note to this kind of like pastoral um, experience I believe that when we get flagrant and public and shameless, I think we do that not because we don't know what we're doing, but because we do know what we're really doing. We know, we know what we're doing is described in the book of Romans in chapter one. Individuals who are here being flagrant about this sin are working hard to suppress the truth. The truth is that they know what they're doing is offensive to a holy God, but in order to convince themselves that they're right and bury the truth down deep as they can, they get a platform or a presence or a following because just like you and me, when we're sinning or we're lost or we're um, idolizing something, we want other people to lie to us and tell us that we're okay, that we're not committing sin, that we're not committing adultery, spiritual adultery or idolatry. The charade has to be big in order to convince us. The charade has to be big and bold and decadent because it has to be just as big as the sin is deep. You see, shamelessness about sin, I believe, is a tactic of the flesh to get us to, 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 uh, to go through with it. I know that because I've tried it and it doesn't work. It doesn't work. Their idolatry isn't only public, the people in this text. Their their idolatry isn't only public and ritualized, but it's also tenacious. These people demonstrate real commitment and real devotion. Look at the work ethic presented in verses 9 and 10. 
You journeyed to the king with oil and multiplied your perfumes. You sent your envoys far off and sent down even to Sheol. You were wearied with the length of your way, but you didn't say it's hopeless. You found new life for your strength, and so you were not faint. These verses are all about the lengths that we'll go to to worship our idols. These verses are all about the costs that we will gladly pay and the money we will gladly waste and the time that we will gladly waste to worship false gods. We're indefatigable. We can't be dissuaded. They even gather up a second wind. These people are getting tired going to worship idols and they rally and say, don't give up, we can still do this. They rally in order to achieve their worship. When we get tired of the same sin not working, the same grooves of idolatry making us pay over and over and over again, we just don't give up. We just keep thinking that this time it'll work. This time I won't feel more gross and empty than when I started. This time it'll be different. I won't be even more unsatisfied than when I began. Idolatry is irrational. All sin is sub-rational. It always makes promises that it cannot keep. The only thing you can do in the face of it is give up. Give up. Turn from it because obedience is the only option that makes sense. Anything else will only have diminishing returns. Only the holy God contains all the wholeness, all the security, all the provision, and all the love that you need and hunger for. So let's not, let's not be like these people who find a second wind to keep deluding themselves. Let's find the comfort that's offered to us at the end of this chapter. Starting in verse 14, it says, And it shall be said, Build up, build up, prepare the way, remove every obstruction from my people's way. That language has been throughout the book of Isaiah and it's highway language, right? It's get out of the way and make a highway for God to get to his people. For thus says the one who is high and lifted up, who inhabits eternity, whose name is holy. I dwell in the high and holy place and also with him who is of a contrite and lowly spirit to revive the spirit of the lowly and to revive the heart of the contrite. So this, this right here is the protocol that I mentioned in the beginning of this sermon. It's the same answer for both categories, both groups of people, the failure of the leaders and the failures of the people. Same solution. Get low. Here we see the condescending God the condescending God of the entire universe say to us, hey, I hang out in two kinds of places, okay? Places that are too high and too holy for you to get to, but take heart because the other place that I hang out is in the presence of contrite people. Contrite means to be crushed. It means to be dejected, broken, beaten to pieces, broken into pieces, to be bruised, to be humbled, and that's the answer for me, and that's the answer for you. There's no tricks or tips or an application that you can download. You need only stop pretending that you're okay and that you can handle everything and give up. And give up. Because if you want, if you want to be with the high and holy God, get low. 
get low. All of a Christian's life is one of repentance. And this isn't the kind of um, saying you're sorry that's a giant weight on your shoulders. Listen to 2 Corinthians 7.10. For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret. Whereas worldly grief produces death. You see, godly grief leads to repentance that doesn't have to feel regret and doesn't have to live under the power of shame anymore. That's the answer. That's the freedom that's offered in Christ. So if you're a believer, the call this morning is to come back to true north and say with me, no matter what I've done, no matter how I've failed, no matter how far I've gone, I'm never too far gone to give up and quit my own idolatrous ideas and return to the living God. I'm never too far gone to forsake my plan and take God's plan instead and fall into the arms of a holy God because he's the kind of God who hangs out with sinners like me. Verse 18 says, I'm not oblivious. I've seen his ways. God's seen it all. And he's seen things that we don't see. He's seen the places in your heart and soul that you are unaware of that are dark and ugly and sinful. Verse 18 says, I have seen his ways, but I will heal him. I will lead him and restore comfort to him and his mourners, creating the fruit of the lips, peace, peace to the far and to the near says the Lord, and I will heal him. You see, the answer is Christ Jesus. The answer for you and the answer for me is Christ. That isn't a Sunday school answer. It's the only answer to every question. Christ, Christ is the one that was crushed, dejected, broken, beaten to pieces, broken to pieces, bruised and humbled. He's the person we look to and identify with. He was crucified so that we can crucify our sin. He died so that we can also die to sin. He was crushed so that we can crush idolatry in our lives. And he was buried so that you and I can be buried in the waters of baptism. And he was raised to new life so that we can say together that the life that we live in the body, we live in faith in the Son of God who loved us and gave himself for us, Galatians 2.20. So in that transaction, we get Jesus' perfect, sinless life imputed to us so that God declares over us righteous, righteous, and not well-behaved, like my grandpa always said, behave yourself when we would leave his presence. And I always thought it was normal. And then I grew up and I was like, it could be more descriptive than that. Like obey yourself or obey your parents. God isn't saying, good job. You mostly did it. He's saying you are just as righteous as, righteous as Jesus Christ himself, right? Your shame, your pride, your real guilt for real sin against a real holy God cannot just be swept under the rug. It can't. It can't. And you can't live that way. In fact, 
you should know today that if you're trying to sweep your sin under the rug and move on and that bugs you, that's God's mercy to you. That's God's kindness to you. If it makes you miserable to pretend like it's not there, that's the goodness of God to you. That's mercy because what he offers is so much better. We come to Jesus with all of our greed and all of our shame and anger and bitterness and haughty judgment of other people. We come with all of our sin and real guilt and we confess it and he forgives us. He washes us clean by the blood of his cross and we get his righteous life. And if you hear that today and you say amen to that, you're a Christian. And I want to invite you here at the end of the service to take communion. And one of the reasons that I'm inviting you to take communion at the end of the service is that I want to invite you, if you believe everything that, uh, or if you agree with what was preached today, it's like, say something about it. We're going to say something about it at the end of this service as we proclaim Jesus's life, death, and resurrection through the broken body and shed blood of Jesus. And I would invite you as you go today to say something about it out in the world, in the different circles that you're in. Um, you're holding something valuable and beautiful and life transforming. So the way we take communion here at Redeemer is we break a piece of bread off and we dip it into a cup. The stoneware is wine. The glassware is juice. We'll have two stations down here, one to my right and left, one in the center that will be a single serving and gluten-free option. And then we'll also have a, uh, a station up in the balcony. If you're a Christian today, we invite you to take communion. If you aren't a Christian today, we invite you to um, doubt your doubts or maybe consider the things that have been mentioned this morning. We're glad that you're here. Um, we're glad that you're here. Welcome. So I'm going to pray and then the servers are going to come forward. Jesus, we love you. We trust you. Help us receive what you've done for us. Give us faith, Holy Spirit, to believe and give us courage to demonstrate and walk out that faith. Lord, give us the courage to be humble, to be contrite, Waken us up to places that we are sinful and prideful or arrogant. Wake those places up in us, God, I beg you. I beg you. Shine light on sin. Glorify yourself through changing people in our church top to bottom. All of us need you. We need your grace. Give us more of it today, I pray in the name of Jesus. Amen. Come when you're ready.